Hi, this is Tanya from Paris, Ontario, Canada, and you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast isn't that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy, reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content. The most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience you're wanting to. And a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to help you get started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free, using promo code DREAM, you've got no more excuses. So let's get started. But before we get started, I need to tell you that there are so many Spanish names, places, and words peppered throughout this story. And I am doing my best on pronunciations, but I doubt I'll be able to nail all of them perfectly. I've practiced all I can, and my apologies in advance. I know I'll probably be off on at least some of them, if not all of them. So I wanted to acknowledge that I am aware of my limitations here. Hector Bareilles was a DEA agent working in Mexico, and to me, that sounds like one of the most dangerous places to be working for the United States government's Drug Enforcement Administration. Many years ago, perhaps now as many as four decades ago, Bareilles found himself involved in a firefight in Mexico. This was the outcome of a DEA-led raid on a drug ranch carried out with the cooperation of the Mexican Federal Police. The raid uncovered 2,000 pounds or 900 kilos of cocaine and thousands upon thousands of pounds of marijuana. An hours-long firefight ensued with an estimated 20,000 rounds fired in total. Three federales were wounded. Hector, down on the ground, looked up and he noticed an ominous thing. The field that he was in. It was a cornfield. And on the leaves of the corn stalks that he is looking at, there's blood. A memory comes flooding back into his mind, something his mom once told him. When she was 15, she became pregnant with Hector. Because of this, her mother threw her out. From there, she would live amongst the gypsies. She became a fortune teller. She read palms and tarot cards, and she looked into her crystal ball. She told him about this moment. She told Hector of danger, of blood in a cornfield. There was no more information she could offer at the time that she told him this, and now, here he was. Through the firefight, Hector began to try and crawl his way over to one of the wounded federales. He was able to bring him to a safe place behind cover to wait for help to arrive. Finally, after an inexplicable delay of more than three hours, the Mexican army showed up 
and the firefight was quashed. Because of Hector's actions in pulling the wounded officer to safety and getting him onto a helicopter to be flown to a San Diego hospital to be treated for his wounds, Hector made a very lasting impression on the Mexican federal police commander, Guillermo Gonzalez Calderoni. They became friends. When Hector was brought back to Washington, D.C., he received commendations for his actions, accompanied by a medal presented to him by the Attorney General of the United States at the time. Then, back to Mexico he went to continue his work. But along with the praises and adulation comes a whole new set of problems for Hector and his family. Death threats. As a result of this, Hector was reassigned back in the United States. But it would not be the last time his job would see him back in Mexico. And we are going to discuss Hector's return to Mexico to investigate the kidnapping, torture, and murder of a fellow DEA agent, an assignment which would ultimately push him into retirement. His career would be ruined. And we're going to go through the entirety of his story in this 95th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of Operation Leyenda. When DEA agent Enrique Kiki Camarena was kidnapped, tortured, and murdered in Mexico, Hector Bareilles' name was floated as someone who could and should be the agent at the helm of the investigation, especially since it was becoming abundantly clear that Kiki's murder was growing colder by the day. Remember, Hector had been pulled from Mexico because of death threats. So why would he be the one sent back? Seems like poor decision-making to send the one agent back into Mexico who's got a target on his back. Well, the logic is this. Hector must be the most familiar and qualified to head the investigation. After all, he wouldn't be getting these death threats if he wasn't their best guy. But Hector would be hastily pulled out of the investigation, but not because of death threats he was receiving in Mexico. The threat was from his own United States government. He needed to back off or else. As it turned out, Hector was underestimated. He was beginning to uncover things that the United States did not want him to be digging up. That the U.S. government may actually have the blood of Kiki Camarena on their hands as well. The city of Guadalajara is located in the Mexican state of Jalisco and is second only to the country's capital, Mexico City, as the largest in the country. In terms of travel today, as it stands, according to the U.S. Department of State Overseas Security Advisory Council, they advise on their website that travelers need to exercise increased caution if traveling to Jalisco and, if possible, to reconsider going there. Homicide and missing persons reports have been on the rise in recent years, and it is due to rival drug trafficking organizations. And of course, this goes back many, many years. On February 7th, 1985, DEA Special Agent Kiki Camarena was abducted, tortured, it is estimated for over a period of two days, 
and by February 9th, he was dead. At the onset of the investigation, there were people taken into custody and ultimately convicted for their involvement in his murder both in Mexico and the United States. But what that investigation did not reveal was who actually killed him and why. Four years after his death, Special Agent Hector Bareilles was sent to try and answer these questions. But after nine months, he came to know that the CIA was somehow involved, though he kept digging. By the spring of 1994, more than five years in, Hector was officially taken off the case. Two years after that, he retired from the DEA, and his career had been destroyed. What he had once dreamt for himself turned out to be anything but. Hector was raised in South Tucson, Arizona, the son of a bricklayer, and remember his mom was the fortune teller. Together, they had sons, several of them. Two of them would end up with careers in law enforcement, Hector, of course, being one of them. One of his brothers got into the construction business, another a teacher, but one, one found himself battling a heroin addiction, and as a result, he was trapped in a prison revolving door. Hector's career progressed like this. He was a small-town officer to the California Highway Patrol to the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA. In an interview he gave with the really comprehensive article on this case on the medium.com written by Charles Bowden and Molly Malloy, Hector explained that there are two kinds of agents in the DEA. There are the suits and there are the gunslingers. He described himself as not a suit. He recalled a time when he was working in Mazatlan with the Federales and the DFS which is the Mexican version of the FBI, who are trained by the American CIA. Hector and company picked up three known drug traffickers and took them onto a small plane and flew them over the Pacific Ocean. They wanted some information from these three guys. There's a ranch that has a large shipment of marijuana, and they are fairly certain that these guys know the location of this ranch. Hector was under the impression that this scenic flight is actually a scare tactic. And that becomes abundantly clear when one of the Mexican officers tells these guys, you know what, this isn't a joke. If you tell us you don't know, then you're getting tossed off this plane. None of them spoke up. So that same Mexican officer who said he wasn't kidding got up, grabbed one of the men who had his hands bound behind his back and shoved him out of the plane. He turned to the other two and said, you want to go or talk? Needless to say, they talked. And so the DEA and the Mexican law enforcement ended up getting the bust. And they turned up a thousand pounds or a little more than 450 kilos of marijuana. Throwing the man from the airplane gave Hector the chills. But that's how he became the DE agent that he was. The gunslinger. He said when he was in the DEA, when they graduated from the academy, 
they'd show off their newly assigned weapons. But these days, DEA agents fresh out of the academy show off their newly assigned laptops. It's a very different agency today. Hector was an undercover agent, and he loved it. And when he got assigned to investigate Kiki's murder, he knew this was going to be a game changer for his career. It would catapult him into the stratosphere. More commendations and congratulations from his bosses behind their desks in Washington, D.C. It wouldn't quite go the way that he had hoped for, however. Hector had previously spoken to the authors of the article that I just mentioned a little while ago, way back in 1998. But everything had to be off the record because the fear of retaliation was still very real at the time. He had listened to the audio tapes of the torture that Kiki had endured back in 85. Yeah, they tape recorded the whole thing. And the sounds from those tapes still echoed through his thoughts. He had listened to them more times than he could count, more times than he'd like to remember. Fifteen years later, though, he was ready to go on the record, and that's what brings us here today. Hector's story and Kiki's. When Kiki was murdered, he was posthumously awarded the highest honor within the DEA, the Administrator's Award of Honor, and he was featured on the cover of Time magazine. And a fact that I didn't know prior to this, and maybe a lot of you didn't know either, but Red Ribbon Week, where schools across the United States raise awareness about substance abuse, was launched because of Kiki Camarena and dedicated to his memory. But the progress on Kiki's case had been slow. The DEA wanted the guys who were actually in the room when the torture was taking place the people who witnessed it. Those are the ones that the head of the DEA at the time, Jack Lon, wanted Hector to weed out. By the time they contacted him, Lon and his guys had been on the case for four years and they had been unable to get to the people that they wanted. Hector told him right off the bat, the people responsible for Kiki's torture and murder, the biggest guys, they're with the federales. Hector has seen it. He had known there to be meetings between top government officials like Mexican state governors and notorious drug traffickers along with members of the Mexican military, the Mexican Federal Police, and members of that Mexican FBI, the DFS. DEA head Lon knew that he needed someone like Hector to send in, someone fluent in the language and someone who knew Mexico someone who knew the corruption at every level. Hector told him that he was going to need a lot of agents and a lot of money for this operation. Why so much? Because they were going to have to get some of the Mexican officials on their side from all sides, not only federales, but members of the Mexican military, but also people on the other side of the law. They were going to be the informants. But once they used them, they would need to be moved out of Mexico and into the United States, or else they're good as dead. So Hector got his money. He got his agents and his informants. In the first year into his investigation, Hector went way over budget. 
but he was getting lots of good intel. He was on a roll. Hector started off by pressing a DEA informant and Jalisco State Police Comandante Antonio Bustamante for information. He was pretty well connected with just about everybody, particularly those who had a hand in the drug business. As a matter of fact, Antonio's best man at his wedding was a man named Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo, one of the founding fathers of the Guadalajara drug cartel, and he will play a major role throughout our story. Carrillo would become one of the key figures in seeking out witnesses to Kiki's torture and murder. But in order to make his case, Hector was going to need the people who were in the actual room where Kiki was being tortured. He knew that there were several witnesses that were present. He was able to hear it on all of that torture that was captured on audio tape. Hector found out about a guy who was the proprietor of several brothels in Guadalajara who was regularly contacted by the people involved with the cartel to provide women for their parties. The brothel owner was very close with some of the top guys, guys like Fonseca Carrillo, Felix Gallardo, Carl Quintero, and Manuel Sacido Uzueta. So Hector turned to him to procure informants, which eventually led Hector to a man named Jorge Godoy. Jorge had been employed by drug capo Carrillo as a bodyguard. Hector also knew he was going to need some convincing. From his office in Los Angeles, California, Hector contacted Jorge. He laid it out for him in a promise. He swore to God that if Jorge traveled up to the United States, he would be compensated and he would be immune from prosecution. Jorge decided to come up. He met with Hector. He had a safe house ready for him a couple of hours northeast of Los Angeles in the mountains of Big Bear. As Hector was driving him there, Jorge was convinced that he was being driven to his death to be executed someplace out in the remote woods, but that wasn't the case. Hector was on the up and up, and he tried to reassure Jorge on the drive that he was going to be safe. That ride would haunt Jorge Godoy for many, many decades to come. What Jorge didn't know that he was only one of several witnesses who were being hidden in various secret safe house locations all over Southern California. All of them were being kept isolated and all were unaware of one another. And each of them have turned DEA informants. This was an effort to keep them from communicating with each other or attempting to compare stories to make sure that everything that comes from each informant is organic. They really aren't all that aware of the investigation into Kiki Camarilla's kidnapping, torture, and murder, and it really wasn't all that significant of a thing to any of them. Kiki was a DEA agent from the United States, an agent from a foreign country sticking his nose in places where it didn't belong down in Mexico. His torture and murder was neither here nor there for any of these guys now being questioned about it as informants. And why was it that these guys were so blasé about it? Because everybody knows that if you are in Mexico and you are picked up by law enforcement, you're going to get tortured. 
And on the flip side of that, if you get picked up by the cartel guys, you're going to get tortured too. And more often than not, the same people work on both sides, both for the police and for the cartel. Jorge Godoy was one of them. He was a Jalisco state police officer, but he was also the bodyguard of drug capo Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo. Both sides. And he was on pace to have a comfortable life in both careers. That is until he turned DEA informant. But it was the only way Hector was going to be able to get to the people who killed Kiki through witnesses like Jorge. Because those who order the killings, they keep their hands clean. Other people do their dirty work. People like Jorge, even though they tend to play both sides of the law, they are usually some of the very few who have some sense of conscience. Hector quickly zeroed in on that. When all was said and done, DEA agent Hector Bareilles was able to come up with more than 200 informants, all of them procured by individuals assisting Hector, all of them in Mexico, and all of them were well compensated. And to all of us looking in, they would be a collection of the shadiest people due to the fact that most of them are career criminals. Some of them have been even known to have tortured and murdered American citizens visiting Mexico. But getting to Kiki's killers overrode all of that. Over time, Hector was able to whittle down the informants from over 200 to about 10. Those were really the only ones who would be able to withstand a cross-examination if and when this case ever went to trial. All of the others were way too shaky, and their credibility was too questionable to be useful as witnesses in any capacity. But as Hector was working on building his case, it began to come apart at the seams. And it really had nothing to do with the criminal backgrounds of his key witnesses and informants. It had everything to do with the things that they were saying and the people that they were saying these things about. But in talking to them, Hector Bareilles was able to finally get an idea of what it was like being inside Kiki Camarena's torture room. Because the finalists on his witness list, they were there. Though agents like Hector Bareilles and Kiki Camarena knew of one another, they never actually met. They had spoken the phone about cases that they had worked on together, but separately. And they had one thing in common. They were both immigrants from Mexico determined to establish their careers in the United States. The DEA had just formed on the heels of President Nixon's promise to combat drug trafficking. And when he did that, a demand for new DEA agents grew. And dreamers, in a personal side note, my dad had told me after he retired from the Navy in 1963 that he went to Washington, D.C. to apply for a job with the DEA. And after he was interviewed, instead of offering him a job with the Drug Enforcement Administration, he was offered a job with the Central Intelligence Agency. And the whole process took a couple of years, but he was eventually sent to Vietnam as the war intensified as a communications specialist. And you know, I've mentioned my mom is Vietnamese, so yeah, 
that's where all that happened. Anyway, in researching this story, it had me realizing why my dad had applied for a job because the demand was there. So, the DEA seemed like a job perfectly suited for guys like Hector and Kiki. They would be working in Mexico, and it would be easy for them to go undercover. Kiki was born in Mexicali, but he grew up in Calexico. He joined the United States Marine Corps and served for two years. After that, he worked as a firefighter as well as a police officer in a small border town, and it was in 1974 when he became a DEA agent. Six years later, he was assigned to work in Guadalajara. If an agent wanted to have some upward mobility within the administration, then the way to get there was to log in some time in a foreign country. And Kiki Camarena was the type of agent who played by the rules. While he was in Mexico, he carried a weapon, but only during the day. And he was instructed to never fire his weapon. And he was never the type of person to go out looking for trouble. He liked working the streets, dealing with informants, gaining intel that way. And in 1984, Kiki came across some information regarding some large marijuana plantations in Zacatecas, Mexico. He also came to find that these marijuana ranches were being cultivated by one of the top guys in the Guadalajara cartel, a guy named Rafael Quintero, who will also play a key role through much of the story as well. He grows three different types of marijuana on his ranches. Kiki was slowly gaining intel on the operation and was carefully reporting everything back outlining the extremely lucrative marijuana operation that Quintero was running. Kiki knew everything that he needed to know about it with the exception of one small detail, the actual location of the marijuana plantations. The marijuana plantations were being run by at least 10 different sets of growing operations working with more than 11,000 acres of land. They had investors putting in hundreds of thousands of dollars for equipment, tractors, drilling wells, countless tons of fertilizer, and hundreds of AK-47s in order for his laborers to protect his investments. What Kiki was finding was having a significant impact on the actual economy of the state as a whole. But all of what he was finding was being completely ignored, and the existence of the marijuana boom was totally being denied by the Mexican government itself. All the while, Quintero and everyone who worked with him were living it up as they operated freely and uninhibited by any type of Mexican law enforcement. They had tons of drug stashes in various cities, Everywhere they traveled, they were armed with AK-47s, and everywhere they went, they would leave tips of 150,000 pesos or more, and that was about 900 American dollars at the time. Legend has it, when Rafael Quintero went to purchase his own Learjet, he gave the salesman a blank check and told them to fill in the cost of the plane. By the spring of 1984, Agent Kiki Camarena managed to gather some very detailed information when it came to the cartel, those who were in charge, as well as the war against it being waged by the United States. 
He came to find that it was a very meticulously organized operation in order for their crops to flourish. Like how much fertilizer was needed, which seeds they needed and how much, where the water wells should be placed, how wide each row should be in order to be properly cultivated. They knew what they were doing and they had it down to a science. Kiki found out that Quintero arrived in Zacatecas to visit the location of the plantation. He was accompanied by 60 DFS, which was the Mexican FBI, and they had all arrived in 15 minivans. With him, he had 360 million pesos to give out to the plantation staff as a sort of bonus. By the end of May, the DEA had had enough and began demanding that the Mexican authorities make a move in shutting down this operation. Kiki, along with a Mexican pilot named Alfredo Avilar, flew over Zacatecas in order to spot the plantation fields from above. The person in charge of the raid was the head of Interpol in Mexico, a man named Miguel Ibarra. Ibarra would later go on to be indicted for Kiki Camarena's murder, but Mexican authorities stepped in and took him into custody, claiming that he was found to be in possession of a kilo of cocaine hidden in his desk at work. But here's the thing. When Ibarra was arrested in March of 1990, he had been in talks with Agent Hector Bareles, who, if you recall, was seeking out informants at the time. Ibarra was considering heading to the United States and providing testimony related to the investigation into Kiki's murder, which was known as Operation Leyenda. He was going to tell all he knew about Kiki's kidnapping and murder, and of course, Hector really wanted this information. Miguel Ibarra was there. He attended all of the meetings leading up to the thing. He was in the room when it was happening. He helped plan everything. But one of the commandantes Hector had become friends with following that raid in the cornfield, Guillermo Gonzalez Calderoni, he was the one who ended up planting that kilo of cocaine. He also had the phone tapped and had been listening in on the conversations Ibarra was having with Hector, and he just could not allow for someone in his position to be colluding with the DEA. Of course, Calderoni needed to protect his agency, and this meant silencing Ibarra so he would be unable to detail the relationship between the Mexican government and the drug cartels. Ibarra became lost in the shuffle of the prison system in Mexico, someplace where he could not be found, nor would he be heard from. But the raid in Zacatecas went down. 20 tons of marijuana was seized, along with enough seeds to plant another 6,000 acres. About 177 people were taken into custody, but most of the top people in charge of the plantations were tipped off and not present at the time of the raid. After the raid, Kiki realized the implications of what they'd done. They busted these guys and they seized all of the marijuana that they had, but it's really not going to have an impact on the entirety of the operation. No matter how many people they arrest, they are always going to be more willing to take the chance in transporting the drugs from Mexico into the United States. There is always going to be an abundance of a supply when it comes to marijuana and cocaine 
because the fact is there is no line of work available anywhere in Mexico that can bring in anywhere close to the kinds of money that can be made in the drug trade. And the threat of going to prison is hardly a deterrent, either because when it comes to the chances of a bright future for the average person in Mexico, it's pretty slim and bleak and hopeless. So much so that going to prison and risking their lives to earn the money in the drug trade is worth the gamble. Fighting against that is an uphill climb. So Kiki decided the way to win this was to chase the money. The idea was this, to quit trying to choke off their supply and prevent them from growing their product, but rather to attack their bank accounts. No money, no crops. This became known as Operation Padrino. Bank accounts belonging to the Guadalajara drug bosses in both the United States and Europe were being seized by the DEA, justifying the taking in court documents by citing unnamed sources. As you can imagine, the drug bosses were pissed, and they wanted to know, who are these unnamed sources writing them out to the DEA that is enabling them to have the authority to seize their money like this? Because these drug guys, they have their own sources within the DEA. So what was stopping them from preventing the leaks causing the bank account seizures? They also had the protection of the DFS, and the DFS had their connections within the United States' CIA, and the CIA had their own connections within the DEA. So the levels of protections and sources ran deep. This was the perilous place that Agent Kiki Camarea was treading with this Operation Padrino that was draining the drug bosses of millions upon millions of dollars. Now, about a month before the Zacatecas raid, DEA agent Phil Jordan paid a routine visit to their Guadalajara offices. He spent the majority of his time there with Kiki, and he would point out to him that everywhere they went together, that they were being followed. Kiki told him it was the DFS. They do that. It's not a big deal. And in less than a year, Agent Kiki Camarena would be dead. Hector's informant, Jorge Godoy, was in deep by the fall of 1984. Remember, he's a Mexican cop and a drug boss bodyguard. He was present for a series of meetings as bank account after bank account was being frozen and seized. The meetings were to discuss what could and should be done about the enormous loss that they are being hit with as a result. In attendance of these meetings were not only the top people in the drug trafficking business, but also police, military, and political figures from Mexico City and Jalisco. There were also some people from Cuba as well, including a guy named Max Gomez, and remember his name. His role will come into focus a little bit later. It would seem like kind of a risk to have guys like Jorge Godoy sitting in on meetings like this. It's neither here nor there for him. He's being paid just to sort of be a servant to his boss. But at the same time, they are present in the room where very important things are being discussed with people who have a lot to gain and a lot to lose. 
They are being made privy to information that could wind up getting people in a lot of trouble or worse. So you have Jorge sitting there, getting paid a couple hundred dollars a week, which is great for him, but he's listening in on conversations involving deals worth tens of millions of dollars. But at the time, the meetings were, by and large, inconsequential to Jorge. He had his sights set on the future. He was content with his job, both sides of it. He was still new and learning, and besides, he had his own set of personal problems, some health issues including a back problem and a problem with his kidneys. Those were the only things at the top of Jorge's priority list, as he would freshen the drinks and clear out the ashtrays for the bosses while they were all sitting there formulating that plan to murder Kiki Camarena. But like I said at the time, neither here nor there. Meeting number one took place in late October of 1984 at the Las Americas Hotel in Guadalajara. The topic? How to uncover the identity of an unknown, unnamed, undercover DEA agent and how to kidnap him. Through Jorge and other informants, Hector found out that the cabinet secretary of Gobernación, Manuel Diaz, was present at this meeting. And this is one of the most powerful political offices in Mexico, second only to the president. And along with holding that position comes the task of being in charge of the DFS. Diaz's name has also been floated as possibly being the next president of Mexico. The Secretary of Defense, General Arvalo Gardaki, was also at this first meeting, as was the head of Interpol, Miguel Ibarra, who we discussed earlier, the head of the Mexican Federal Police, Mexican military personnel, as well as known drug traffickers, Ernesto Carrillo, Miguel Gallardo, Rafael Quintero, Ruben Arce, Juan Manuel Uzeta, who was also known as El Chochiloco, along with their entourage of bodyguards. Jorge Godoy was positioned by the entrance of the suite, occasionally coming in with drinks, drugs, and appetizers. At this meeting, the discussion involved the fact that the DEA was pressuring the Mexican military to obliterate the plantation fields that had been seized, and they needed to figure out a way to stop this from happening. Manuel Diaz, the next presidential hopeful, expressed his concern about his political future. He was the one who had signed off on most of the DFS agents slash traffickers in attendance. If it gets out that he is the one who is vouching for these guys to play on both sides, this was going to negatively impact his hopes for the presidency. When all was said and done, those at the meeting came to this conclusion. They've got to start greasing some palms or shelling out some bribes. And if that doesn't work, they're going to have to resort to plan B. The DEA agent behind the leaks must be executed. Meeting number two took place towards the end of November 1984. And in between that time and meeting number one, another marijuana plantation in the state of Chihuahua was raided. 
The operation had no less than 10,000 laborers tending to the fields and was being run in conjunction and with the protection of the Mexican army. Absent from this meeting was the Secretary of Defense and the Cabinet Secretary, but there were several others, including those involved in the local drug trade, members of law enforcement and other politicians, including the governor of Jalisco, who was becoming quite irate due to the fact that the offending DEA agent had yet to be identified. In order to calm the governor down, he was gifted a gold-plated AK-47 by Jorge Godoy's boss, Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo. A week later, meeting number three took place, but still nothing had changed. And then there was a fourth, after which Jorge had heard enough and he was worried. When his boss heard about the raid on the plantation in Chihuahua, Jorge was with him, and he overheard him saying that things were about to get real, and if that DEA agent is kidnapped, they were looking to be in some deep trouble. By December of 1984, Jorge was paying very close attention to what was going on around his boss, as well as the numerous houses that Carrillo owns. On one occasion, Jorge spotted a man who was obviously not Mexican, but rather American, up on a utility pole behind his house. When he let Carrillo know what he saw, he wasn't surprised or worried and explained that the American man was working for him. Okay, that seemed a little weird to Jorge, but whatever, he made note of it anyway. Then sometime later, that same American man showed up at Carrillo's house and dropped off two garment bags. Both of them were filled with cash. Of course, he was curious, but he also knew his role and learned to mind his own business. Then following that, Jorge noticed two men show up at Carrillo's house. One of them was Cabinet Secretary Manuel Diaz, and the other was that Cuban guy, Max Gomez. They were there to pick up some money. A bribe. The money had been placed in small cardboard boxes that were normally used to transport eggs. Those cardboard boxes, in total, contained $400 million in $100 bills. And in case you were wondering, that comes to about 8,800 pounds or roughly 4,000 kilos. And needless to say, they likely showed up with a small truck in order to transport that kind of money. Jorge overheard a portion of the conversation. Diaz and Gomez were told by the drug traffickers, We are doing what we said we would do. Now we are waiting for you to do what you said you would do. Jorge helped carry out the boxes of money, and it was then he saw the two men picking it up. He knew that Gomez had some kind of involvement when it came to the Contras or the guerrilla forces in Nicaragua. He also had a bit of knowledge that Quintero owned a ranch in Veracruz that served as a training facility for the Contras. By this time, Jorge started to grow more and more concerned about his own safety. So, by January of 1985, he decided it would be best if he took a leave. He knew the plan for Kiki Camarena was approaching, and when it did, he wanted no part of it. 
and he wasn't the only one who felt uneasy about the whole thing. At least one drug boss, Miguel Gallardo, began to feel that some of the others in charge of the Guadalajara cartel were behaving too impulsively and recklessly for a plan that has some serious implications. He even tried to get Carrillo and Quintero to draw back from their plan. But of the two, Quintero is one that cannot be restrained. At the time, he was a billionaire with no inhibition to speak of, and the lengths to which he would go knew no bounds, and he was only 30 years old. Jorge's boss, Carrillo, he too was a man of little caution. In the midst of all of this, he took some of his money and invested it in a ranch he believed belonged to Satan. In order to access the ranch, one must cross what is known as the Bridge of Devils, and if anyone crossed it, the cost was your soul. A chapel on the ranch was ornamented with pentagrams, and the priests performed rituals that involved black magic, including the sacrificing of a rooster, with Carrillo drinking its blood. But he would do these things very discreetly. He'd be within the confines of the chapel for hours at a time, guards standing watch outside the chapel doors. And all of this would be conducted in the throes of a sustained cocaine binge. Jorge described Carrillo as very good when it came to selling his soul to the devil. So we've discussed Jorge's drug cartel boss, but he also has a boss at his job with the state police, a man named Ramon. And just like Jorge, he worked his way up after he finished up in the police academy, and he too worked the security detail for Carrillo, the same drug boss as Jorge. He knew and understood how intertwined the Mexican government and the criminal underworld functioned. And Ramon took part in an undisclosed number of kidnappings, tortures, and murders himself. He told of a time when Carrillo ordered his own half-brother to be killed, as he felt his presence threatened his own as the head of the operation. Though he was making this demand of Ramon while he was very high and very drunk, and Ramon felt as though that it was the drugs and the booze talking, Ramon ended up not carrying out the orders given to him, and the whole thing was forgotten by the next day. He knew one thing was for certain. If he had done what Carrillo asked of him, Carrillo would have had him killed for it later on. Ramon knew that Ernesto Fonseca Carrillo was a very powerful man. He was once sitting in an armored Mercedes-Benz that belonged to him, and he was just kind of waiting around, and so Ramon started poking around inside the glove box, and he found that the name on the vehicle's registration was Jose Lopez Portillo, who had actually been the president of Mexico from 1976 to 1982. He had given Carrillo the car as a gift. And he knew around that same time Carrillo was providing the current president of Mexico, Miguel de la Madrid with shipments of cocaine. And this was a man who ran on the platform that he would clean up the corruption of the previous administration of President Portillo. Ramon came to learn that then-President de la Madrid had an insatiable cocaine habit himself. Ramon acknowledged that a lot of what he has to say seems outlandish, 
but that's why he never really wanted to talk about it. But when he came up to the United States to provide his testimony for Operation Leyenda, the initial interactions with him were penetrating. The things that he had to say about the president's involvement in the drug business was a threat to the investigation as a whole because it wasn't just about whether or not he was to be believed, but some careers were being seriously jeopardized. The American agents and attorneys on the case at the federal level knew the implications of chasing down evidence related to the possibility of foreign heads of state having a hand in the drug business, especially using drugs in exchange for favors and as shields of protection provided to the drug traffickers courtesy of the Mexican government. Were these the accusations the DEA wanted to pursue? And at what cost? Were they willing to gamble with their careers and possibly their lives? They needed to believe in the unthinkable and the seemingly impossible in order to find their way into that room where Agent Kiki Camarena was brought in to be tortured. They would have to. The things that happened in there, that is the materialization of all that is unthinkable. Kiki could be heard screaming on audio tapes made inside the room. How unthinkable? They sodomized him with a tire iron. They obliterated his jaw to the point that the things Kiki was trying to say were indiscernible. In order to get into that torture room, you would have to believe in the unbelievable. If they didn't, they weren't going to be able to find their way there. If anyone believed that the president of a country would have nothing to do with the drug cartel, if you didn't believe that just anybody could disregard law enforcement because they can, they have the power to, and they aren't afraid to abuse it, if you aren't willing to suspend your disbelief in everything you ever knew and stood for, even possibly sacrifice a part of yourself for, then you are never going to be able to find your way into the confines of that torture room. Sadly, Kiki was the one who didn't see it. It's been said that he had been foolishly blinded by his own personal ambitions. It had been one of the biggest problems inhibiting the war on drugs for so long that none of this that I'm telling you here in this episode could be possible. The president isn't rubbing elbows with the drug lords. The United States and none of its entities would ever collude with criminals. There would never be any kind of assistance or funding to forward the efforts of the Nicaraguan Contras from the White House by way of the Guadalajara drug cartel. Kiki was finding the things that people once thought simply could not be and realizing that they actually very much could be. Ramon was quick to point out that unless you have been in this world of drugs and money and experienced the fear that goes along with it, nobody can comprehend it. He recalled a time just a little more than a month before Kiki's kidnapping the plans were being finalized and they were preparing to carry it out when one morning Carrillo's son-in-law appeared outside the house and spotted a small group of Americans. 
two couples, actually, and he suspected that they might be DEA agents. He told Ramon of his suspicions, and Ramon forwarded the message to Carrillo, who immediately demanded for them to get him. When they were detained and brought inside, one of Carrillo's guys who knew a little bit of English asked them who they were. The couples were told that they were the police, which wasn't exactly wrong because you know these guys are Mexican police officers who moonlight as drug cartel security detail. The two American couples said that they were missionaries there to spread God's word. Turns out that they were Jehovah's Witnesses and they had traveled from the United States to go door-to-door in Mexico. But they weren't allowed to be on their way. Carrillo ordered them to be transported to another location, some apartments that belonged to him. There had been an opening where the captives tried to make a break for it, but they were quickly apprehended once again. But this time they were stripped of their clothes, so it would be more of a challenge to try and escape. They were taken to a van and driven to a ranch outside of town. The men were locked inside some horse stalls and the women were taken to a bedroom. Eventually, the men were brought into the room so they could watch as the women were brutalized, tortured, sodomized, and sexually assaulted. The details are horrific, so I'll spare you all of those. Ramon was there, though he said he complained about the newer, younger guys wanting to do this to the women, but Carrillo just laughed it off. Later on that evening, Carrillo summoned Los Dormidos, which is Spanish for the sleepers. They are the men in charge of disposal and burial. The four Americans were brought to the edge of graves dug for them. They made a last futile attempt to beg for their lives before they were each shot to death, falling into their final resting place, a location that would never be found. It was a constant struggle for Ramon when it came to abiding by his Catholic faith by being a part of this in the drug underworld. He compartmentalized, and he'd even go so far as to say that the work strengthened his faith because he had no choice but to be a part of these horrible things, the beating and the torturing and the killing. But the one thing he knew to be true of most, if not all the policemen who participated in this, Nobody did these violent acts because they liked it or wanted to. They all did it out of fear. The day to pick up Kiki Camarena was approaching. On the final day of January in 1984, Carrillo called for a meeting at La Langosta restaurant. All of the usual suspects were in attendance at this meeting. Carrillo, Quintero, Chochiloco, Gallardo, and several others. Ramon was there. He sat down next to the door and was offered to help himself to all the food he would like. It's all free of charge. And as he was eating, Quintero notices two Americans cracking open the door and sticking their heads in. Someone whispered those three letters, DEA. The two Americans were quickly grabbed, Ramon had one of them, Quintero had a hold on the other. One of the men is John Walker, a Vietnam vet turned novelist who transplanted from Minnesota to live in Guadalajara 
for the low cost of living. The other is Alberto Redalat, a friend of Walker's, still in college studying dentistry in town for a visit. The two of them were taken to a back room where Quintero pistol-whipped one of the men, and shortly after that, a group consisting of a number of men armed with knives and ice picks began torturing John and Alberto. Ramon's role? He held down one of the men while they were being tortured, but soon he couldn't handle it anymore and decided to step outside for a moment while the others continued. Eventually, both John and Alberto's throats were slit. Yet despite all this, John, the former Marine, managed to break away and ran out the door. Ramon was out there and he tackled him. And John's blood spilled all over him. Los Dormidos are called in again, and Ramon would later be congratulated for his assistance in helping to catch the runner. He told everyone that he needed to go change his clothes. So over the course of December and into January, Ramon admittedly had been directly involved in the murders of six Americans, the four missionaries, the Vietnam vet who retired to Guadalajara and his friend. Ramon was under the impression that all six of them were agents of the Drug Enforcement Administration. Yet there had been absolutely no response from the American government. Their killing and making DEA agents vanish, and the United States has nothing to say about it. So that's what these guys are thinking by the beginning of February. They are having their meetings discussing the upcoming kidnapping of Kiki Camarena. Meetings that included, of course, members of the drug cartel, but also top officials within the Mexican government, law enforcement, and military. And all of it having gone on quietly, with no response on the part of the United States. Americans were being killed in the midst of all this, and still nothing. Ramon began to see what was going on right in front of him that the cartel and the United States must somehow have a deal. What that deal was, he had no idea. He was just there to do his job and follow instructions. And remember the Cuban guy, Max Gomez. Ramon also began to understand what his role was in all of this as well. When he first became aware of Gomez was back in the summer of 84 when he visited Carrillo along with an army colonel from Mexico City to deliver a stockpile of AK-47s and hand grenades. Carrillo instructed Ramon to take care of Gomez. He's from the CIA. Ramon soon learned that Max Gomez is an alias. His real name is Felix Rodriguez. He had been a fighter at the Bay of Pigs. He had been an overseer and one of the ones in charge of Cuban revolutionary figure Ernesto Che Guevara's execution in 1967. He also was an instructor with the Phoenix program, which was implemented by the CIA during the Vietnam War, which also involved the South Vietnamese and the Australian military. Trainees in the Phoenix program were given instruction in identifying and taking down the Viet Cong by way of penetration, torture, capture, counterterrorism, interrogation, and assassination. So yeah, this guy is all kinds of serious. 
And by the time Ramon has his interactions with Max Gomez as he knew him in the beginning, so we'll continue to call him by that name, he has also become involved in fighting in Central America, specifically in drumming up support for the Nicaraguan Contras, as well as being involved in the training of guerrilla soldiers. The first time Ramon saw Gomez, he arrived with a large bag of money. The second time he saw him was two days prior to Kiki's kidnapping when he went along with Carrillo and his usual caravan of characters to head over to Quintero's place. Gomez was there in a meeting with Cabinet Secretary Diaz along with several others, but Ramon stayed outside the meeting room, which lasted a little over an hour. The third time he saw Max Gomez was on the very day of Kiki's abduction. He was at the Torture House, which was located on Lope de Vega Street. By the time Ramon saw Gomez, Kiki had already been taken and the torture had been underway. Ramon said he saw Max Gomez coming and going from the room where Kiki was, and he could hear Gomez asking him questions. Who do you know in the government that's involved? What generals do you know are involved? Ramon soon remembered seeing Gomez on a number of other occasions. He was with that American guy that he saw on the utility pole a couple of months back. Ramon had been instructed by Carrillo to take the half million dollars that he had in his trunk and give it to this American. Hector was listening intently to Ramon tell him all of this. His words hung there for him to ponder. We have an American agent accepting a half million dollars from drug capo Carrillo and this Cuban guy, Max Gomez, who is questioning Kiki Camarena while he's being tortured. And then there was the matter of the delivery of the AK-47s and grenades with Carrillo instructing Ramon to take care of Gomez. He's with the CIA. A part of Hector wanted to just ignore this information that he obtained from Ramon. He's a killer. Everybody involved are killers. How seriously could it or should it be taken? None of this information is coming from anyone who's on the up and up, and it's compromising two government agencies and countless people who work for them. What Hector was learning? What good would this information do? Nothing when he really thought about it. It's pointless. Unless you're Agent Kiki Camarena, a man who was abducted and tortured for nothing more than doing his job. Raul was another man who came up to the United States to provide his informant testimony to Hector and ultimately disappeared into the witness protection program. He started a brand new life, a new family, and a new job operating a couple of businesses. The past he left behind long ago but he was able to share his experiences with Hector before he did. Raul was also a state police officer, and he was at the same meetings that Ramon and Jorge described that involved the discussion and planning of Kiki's kidnapping. He described the same drug capos, the same top politicians, along with the military and the law enforcement personnel. He talked about the day the Jehovah's Witnesses made the unfortunate decision to knock on doors on their block. He was at the La Langosta restaurant when John Walker and Alberto Redelot were taken, tortured, and killed too. 
He overheard Quintero tell Cabinet Secretary, future President Hopeful Manuel Diaz, that when he ascends to the top, remember them. Stories were being corroborated. And Raul remembered something else important. He witnessed an American agent at Carrillo's home twice. He was the one who came for the money that was packed in garment bags. This American agent was also present when Mark Gomez and Cabinet Secretary Diaz picked up the money concealed in cardboard egg boxes. He overheard Quintero say to them at the time, Here's your money, let's get to work. And Raul was at the Lopa de Vega Street Torture House on the morning of Kiki's kidnapping, which was February 7, 1985. In total, about 40 people were present. Members of the Mexican FBI, the DFS, are there, as well as members of the state police. At 12.30 on the day of the 7th, Raul witnessed the arrival of a man he knew who worked at the American consulate, and they immediately began discussing the kidnapping. The man from the consulate told Carrillo's main lackey that they were on schedule, which he gave them earlier. A procession of four vehicles began making the drive towards the American consulate. They stopped to leave one of the vehicles parked at a nearby location just in case things did not go as planned and they needed a getaway vehicle. The other vehicles were staged at key surveillance points around the consulate. Carrillo himself was parked a couple of blocks away. Raul had been seated in the same vehicle as the man from the consulate. He was the one who had the information that would enable them to pull off the kidnapping. He knew which exit Kiki would be emerging from, the south door on Calais Libertad. And just after 2 p.m., they heard the consulate guy suddenly say, There he is. Raul, along with two of Carrillo's henchmen, approached Kiki. One of them showed his DFS badge and identification, and he told Kiki that the Comandante wants to see you. Hector's informant, Raul, was right there. He listened as Kiki started to answer by saying, When we are summoned and our services are needed, it's done through... But he was abruptly cut off when the officer brandishes a weapon, jabs Kiki in the ribs with it, and forces him into the back seat of the car. Raul pulled the jacket that Kiki was wearing over his head, and the consulate man drove them all back to the Lope de Vega street house. Over the crackle of the radios that they were using, one of the henchmen informed everyone in this one ominous statement. The doctor has seen the patient. When Kiki was brought into the house, Carrillo and Quintero were seated in the patio with a colonel from the Mexican army. One of the kidnappers announced to the trio, You said it could not be done, yet here he is. Quintero said to Kiki, I told you, you son of a bitch, that you were going to fall into my hands. Kiki had a blindfold on, but he was certainly abundantly clear that he was not in the presence of the Comandante. He wasn't in the police station, and he probably wasn't going to walk out of this alive. But in that moment, Raul found himself a bit confused because he was suddenly under the impression that Kiki and Quintero were familiar with one another in some capacity. 
Kiki was responding to him, telling him that he was more used to him alive rather than dead. Quintero's half-brother interrupted the conversation and asked, Why did you betray me? Kiki was confused and asked, What are you talking about? He had no idea. He told Kiki that he had received a lot of money, and Kiki insisted that he got no money at all, but let him talk to Quintero. Let them talk. They understand one another. Quintero's half-brother pushed again. How do you know that you were talking to Quintero? Kiki replied, who else would detain me like this? Quintero approached Kiki, put his arm over his shoulder and walked him into a back room. A DFS commandante followed, bringing a tape recorder with him. Now here, dreamers, you see what's interesting is that the DEA maintained that they had no idea what drug cartel leader Rafael Caro Quintero looked like, that they had never seen him, nor did they have a photograph of him. However, later on, as Operation Leyenda unfolded, it was uncovered a bit of intriguing information. $4 million was paid to Kiki Camarena by Quintero, a bribe, but Kiki never got it. It had been intercepted by the federales who were supposed to have been the ones to deliver it. As it turned out, Kiki never knew that he was to be given a $4 million bribe, nor did he know that his failure to receive it would eventually lead him to becoming Quintero's target, as Quintero, who was very rich and very powerful, also became very angry with Kiki Camarena. Raul had come in and out of the back room where Kiki was being tortured. He saw Max Gomez asking questions and demanding answers. Among a total of about three people were conducting the investigation. Later on, Max Gomez would later deny any involvement in Kiki Camarena's death. They wanted to know what the DEA is doing in Guadalajara. Kiki told them that they were there to investigate drug traffickers. They asked him why does he not carry a gun, and he told them that they are not there to kill people. They asked him about specific Mexican politicians, heads of state, and the Secretary of Defense. They asked Kiki about the council secretary, Manuel Diaz. They asked him about the governor of Jalisco. Both Diaz and the governor were present at the house, and both were taking turns peering in on Kiki's interrogation. Now, while all of this was going on, Kiki's pilot, Alfredo Zavala Avalar, the one who flew for him during the Zacatecas plantation raid, the raid that got the drug cartel leaders so angry in the first place, they brought him in too. Raul was in the room when several of the men jumped off the bed and landed on Kiki's back. The cracking sound of Kiki's ribs was audible. Raul said Kiki showed an immense amount of courage throughout the entire ordeal. He never begged. Once in a while, he would complain of the discomfort and the pain. But he never pleaded for any mercy. After a short period of time, Carrillo left with several of the men from his entourage to go back to his own house. He was angry about how all of this was unfolding. He didn't like it. He came back a little while later, and both of his bodyguards turned informants now, Ramon and Raul, told him that things were spiraling out of control. What they were doing to Kiki was far too excessive, and he was about to die. 
Carrillo was upset and he told Quintero that this was not the plan that they had discussed. They decided to bring in a doctor, Umberto Machain. He was asked to take a look at Kiki and make an assessment. Dr. Machain let Carrillo and Quintero know that if they do not bring Kiki to a hospital immediately, he was going to die. Quintero is not moved. Kiki double-crossed him and this was the consequence of that. They gave Dr. Machain specific instructions. Keep Kiki alive so they can continue on with their interrogation until their questions are answered. Let's take a quick review of who is gathered in the living room of this torture house. Cabinet Secretary of Gobernación, Manuel Diaz. Secretary of Defense, General Arvalo Gardoqui. Head of the Mexican Interpol, Miguel Ibarra. That Cuban guerrilla training guy, Max Gomez slash Felix Rodriguez. The head of the DFS, Sergio Verdin, and a drug trafficker from Honduras with known ties to the CIA, ostensibly through an airline company that he owns called Setco, which incidentally is a key supplier to the Contra rebels in Nicaragua. As Raul sat down to have a bite to eat in the kitchen, he overheard a conversation. Somebody was wondering if and when they were going to kill Kiki and the pilot, Alfredo. He heard that someone was saying that they wanted it to be heard straight from Kiki's mouth that they were out to stop the drug trafficking in the state of Jalisco. General Gardaki appeared to be somewhat apprehensive about it. From what Raul could see, as he overheard the general telling the group that the bodies must be hidden so they will never be found. Council Secretary Diaz, the man about to run for president of Mexico, assured the group that everything is going just as planned, and Quintero concurs. Yes, and nobody worry. They're going to kill all of them anyway. And then he pointed at Diaz and told him, You will make it to the top. We need you at the top. Two mornings later, on February 9th, with bodyguards and entourage in tow, Carrillo came back to the torture house to find that Agent Enrique Kiki Camarena was dead. An argument between Carrillo and Quintero erupts, but as their respective security detail all reach for their weapons and point them at everyone else, the tense moment is suddenly squashed in what pretty much amounted to a draw. They've come to realize that their drug operation in Guadalajara is facing collapse and that Kiki was right. He was better for them alive rather than dead, but they didn't listen, and it's too late now. Kiki and his pilot, Alfredo, were transported to a park on the outskirts of town. But Alfredo is not quite dead yet, though it isn't clear if they realize that or not when they are shoveling dirt on top of the two men. But unlike the other six Americans they killed in December and January, which went off without so much as a word from the United States authorities, they quickly found out that Kiki's death had the DEA hot. They made the decision to move the bodies outside of Jalisco. One stayed over in Michoacan. The kidnapping of Agent Kiki Camarena sparked a swift and immense response from the Drug Enforcement Administration. 
Agents from the highest levels flooded into Guadalajara, Jalisco. Customs ordered that every single vehicle leaving Mexico into the United States be searched, which effected the essential shutdown of the entire international border, which led to a strong and angry response from the capitals of both countries. It took about a month, but Kiki and Alfredo's bodies were recovered from their shallow burial plot, which was only about 70 miles or 112 kilometers outside of Guadalajara, over in Michoacan. We are going to pause our story here, and it will be continued in part two, as soon as I can get it recorded, where we get into the arrests and the fallout resulting from Operation Leyenda. But before we end this, as I promised, we are going to start doing our birthday shoutouts. Eventually, I think I'm going to make it a weekly thing, but for our first time, I'm going to go through all the birthdays for the month of June, half in this part one and the other half in part two. And June so far has the most birthdays, so here we go. On June 1st, we have Miss Cleopatra, that's her name on Instagram. June 2nd is Marcy R. June 3rd, Lindsay F. June 5th, Angela M. June 7th, Molly S. June 9th, Terry M. and Jenny M. June 11th, Louise W. June 12th, Emily C. Jen H. Andrea G. Laura R. Dr. John of the LA Not So Confidential podcast and Jill C at Sunshine Jill on Instagram. June 13th is Melissa Thurman of the Last Ovation podcast. June 14th, Cindy A. June 15th, I have Bernadette at the Murderific podcast, Heather M and Sylvia D. And last but not least, on the 16th of June, we have Sarah P. Happy birthday to all of you. And thank you for listening to this episode of California Dreaming. Stay tuned for part two, which will be out very shortly, as well as our anniversary episode, which is coming up sometime later on this week. Until next time, sweet dreams.